resurrection never ends. Don't forget that. Always remember that resurrection never ends. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. Welcome to Faith Is. This is the place where we challenge each other to stretch our faith, to stretch our absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, because we understand faith to be absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And, oh, did I say, resurrection never ends. Now, of course, I understand, and I haven't mixed up the dates, I understand that Easter was last week, but it's still true, resurrection never ends. I've started saying that at the Easter season, sometimes on Easter Sunday, and most of the time after that, just to remind us how important resurrection really is. In case you haven't realized, remind yourself of this also. Everything, the whole story, the whole reality of Christian faith rises or falls on the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus rose from the dead, that validates Christian faith 100%. If he did not, it all collapses. But I'm here to remind you, resurrection never ends. And we remind ourselves at our church about that. I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, in case you're wondering. And we celebrated Easter, and we will keep celebrating Easter because resurrection never ends. And I want us to take a look at some of the things related to the resurrection story, and I want us to revisit that because so many times in our celebrations of events, they are one-off. We just pay attention to them a day, maybe leading up to it a little more than a day, like we have Lent leading up to Easter or Advent leading up to Christmas. But too often, once the event passes, it's just kind of our custom, our habit to let it go. And I want to remind us that we should never let resurrection go. Yes, I know it's an annual observance. Yes, I'm good with that. I'm sure you are too. But I'm also good with the reality that resurrection never ends. And it's not going to end ever. The living Christ lives forever. And one day we will live forever with him in the holy city, the new Jerusalem, heaven. People call it by a lot of names. But the important thing is, he'll be there, and so will we. Well, I want us to revisit the resurrection story, and I want to read it. It's quite long from the Gospel of John, but I want to go back and read the entire chapter of John, chapter 20. Some people say, wow, that's a lot to read. Well, it is, but you know and I know that what God says in the Bible is far more important than what I say, so giving time for that is certainly appropriate. And while I read, I'm going to give you a little preview of what's coming. Maybe you'll listen for this and notice this. There were five either people or groups that took the step to believe in Jesus following his resurrection. And we're going to talk about them, some in more detail than others. But but I want you to think about that as I read this. Maybe you can identify the five. I'm not going to point them out until after I finish because I don't want to interrupt the reading. But maybe you'll find those five, and if not, we'll talk about them a little bit. And I'm going to ask you, 
while you're thinking about this, which person or group do you find yourself identifying with? Which person or group is most like you? And yes, I'll tell you which one is most like me. I'm not sure that'll be a surprise to too many people. Might be to a few. But, um, well, we'll get there. So let's take a look at the story from John chapter 20. I'm going to read from the New Revised Standard Version, Update Edition. There are many excellent English translations. This is just the one I've been using lately. So that's why I'm reading from it. John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciple set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not touch me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, 
and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Now don't miss that last part. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. He gives you right there in just a short statement some very interesting insights. Well, the one of them that really gets a lot of people's attention is that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Well, that's interesting that that's mentioned, and it's mentioned that they're not written down. But what is written down was written for a very important and specific purpose, so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. So don't fret about what wasn't written down. Notice that what was written was written so that all of us may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. That's the important part that the gospel writer wanted us to get right there. So let's take a look. Let's think out loud about this. One of the things that I enjoy doing with you is thinking out loud about these Bible passages. It's not that we come to conclusions on every possible aspect of everything we read together and think about together, but we think out loud to help us have confidence in God, to help us explore what it means to have faith in God, what it means to have confidence in Him, and to help each other stretch our thinking and enlarge our understanding so that we can actually trust Him. So before I read, I suggested that there are five people or groups of people that were identified in this chapter as those who believed. So let's go through and let's name them in case you didn't get them. Let's think about them. Well, at the beginning, of course, there's the the other disciple. And it's said very clearly in there that he believed. Of course, there's, secondly, there's Mary. She went and discovered the empty tomb, called the other disciples, went back and had an encounter with the living Christ. And she believed. She talked to him. Later on, we see there was a group of what's described as the other disciples. And Jesus appeared to them. It mentions that they were inside behind a locked door because they were afraid of the Jews. Now, that's not a, a reason or a idea or any excuse for blaming Jews for anything. That's not the point. It's referring to in the scriptures as the 
Jewish leaders who were the ones who had Jesus arrested. So they were in, in a locked situation because they were afraid of who might be out there. And they had been identified with Jesus. They didn't know if maybe they were next. But all of a sudden, there's Jesus with them. And they rejoiced because they saw the Lord. And they believed. So that's three. The other disciple, and we don't know for sure the name of that other disciple. It likely was, many people say that it was, but it's not, as I, far as I could tell, 100% confirmed that it was John, the writer of the Gospel of John. Many people believe that. I'm not arguing with that. I'm just saying that I'm not sure that we know without a doubt. So the other disciple, Mary, the other disciples, the group of disciples, and they are not all named. Well, the, one, of the th- one of the people that's named is Thomas because he wasn't there. So among the other disciples would, would include Thomas, but Thomas was absent during this first encounter with Jesus. So the other disciple, Mary, the other disciples, plural, and Thomas would be number four. And then at the end of the passage, it kind of summarizes things by referring to those who have not seen, but yet have believed. So there are five groups of people. The other disciple, Mary, the other disciples, plural, Thomas, and then the people who who have believed even though they haven't seen Jesus. And one of the things I suggested and one of the things I'd like you to think about is stories often come to us in a way that catches our imagination or we begin to think about them, we begin to notice things, we begin to think about the characters involved. And one of the interesting things about a story is that we often find ourselves identifying with one of the people in the story. Um, that, that's true from fiction stories that we read about. It's true from maybe a television show that you watch. You might find yourself gravitating toward one character or another or identifying with one character or another. This is not an unusual dynamic. We don't often think about Bible stories this way, I suppose. Maybe we should more, but be that as it may, I suggested that we should think about, and I would ask you to think about, which character in this story do you identify with, or do you think about more, or catches your imagination a little bit more, or intrigues you a little bit more? And it could be any any of them, and I'm not particularly interested in telling you one is right or the other. I'm just simply saying that we can learn something about ourselves and our confidence in God when we consider the Bible stories and the characters and how they responded. Sometimes when I read a Bible story, I look at the characters and I think, boy, I don't want to be like that guy. Well, that's understandable because the Bible's honest enough about human failing that there are plenty of times we don't want to be that guy. There are other times that that we think, wow, that's amazing. I'd like to have the same strength of character, the same conviction as that guy. Maybe we're fascinated by them, but we're not even able to say, wow, I want to be like that person because we're not even sure we, we could begin to be like them. But that's the idea. The, the, that's the way Bible stories work. They catch our imagination and they, for one reason or another, they, they intrigue us. And so we're caught up with these characters in the stories. For example, if you look at the Old Testament, I certainly would not want to be like King Saul. I mean, he was king. That's kind of cool. Maybe it'd be fun to be king. Uh, maybe not. But 
I don't want to be like him because he was not faithful to God, and it ended badly. On the other hand, I have always been a bit intrigued, and I don't know why, with the story of Daniel. I'm told that when I was a kid, Daniel in the lion's den was my favorite story. Well, I don't remember that really. I believe it must be true. They wouldn't have told me otherwise. But I really do find the character of Daniel just riveting and fascinating. And I'm certainly not sure I could live up to what Daniel went through and handled so well. But I find it absolutely intriguing to think about how Daniel and his other companions there in exile in Babylon managed a very, very difficult situation. So back to John chapter 20. Let's go through it a little bit. The first person that's described as believing in this story was the one described as the other disciple that may have been John, the one that Jesus loved. Most people think that's the case from what I can tell. But here in the scriptures, he's described as the other disciple. He outran Peter, but Peter went into the tomb. And it's described that that when he looked in there, he, he saw that and he came to believe right away. Maybe that's you. Maybe a quick glance and you're in. For whatever reason, it just, you're in. And John had good reason for making, if it was John, making that decision because he had been with Jesus. He knew him well. Uh, But some people, they just come to faith and they, it's just like, yeah, of course I would do that. And uh, I, I kind of admire that. I'm not sure I could be that. And certainly I don't think it's that easy for people like me to uh, come to that. But nonetheless, he did. He believed. And wow, the rest is kind of history from from that perspective. And we admire him for that. The the next person that that we see there was Mary, and she has identified Mary Magdalene. And she's there at the tomb, and she sees what's going on from the beginning. And it doesn't give us any sense that she believed in resurrection or that Jesus had come back to life until she has the encounter with Jesus there in the garden. But Mary, she had this conversation, and she didn't recognize Jesus at first. Don't know why that is. Maybe because she was just so distraught by the events of of the last couple of days, and now this, discovering the body is gone, and being in fear that somebody had taken it away, and she couldn't do what was right by honoring the person who had died, Maybe because of resurrection, Jesus' appearance looked so different than he had ever looked before. Uh, Some people think that's the case because resurrection is different. There's no doubt about it. And it was very different for Jesus because he would never die. In fact, he went to be with the Father. It's described there in this passage and then later at the ascension. But we're not going to get too far ahead of ourselves on all that. At this point, Mary has this conversation and all at once, after Jesus calls her by name, she recognizes him and immediately comes to believe. Well, I guess that wouldn't be too hard. If we actually saw Jesus standing in front of us, we might actually suddenly come to believe. I have read credible testimonies that people have seen Jesus in visions and or dreams, however you might want to describe them, and they come to believe because of the power of that revelation. Well, that to a lot of us seems like, oh, wow, I don't know what to make of that, and I'm not saying I know what to make of it. But I know this is true. We don't come to believe in Jesus except by revelation of Jesus to us. We don't just happen upon belief. 
God reaches to us and extends to us grace that allows us the opportunity to believe. And we should not take that lightly. So if God is talking to you and you sense that he is extending grace to you to believe, then don't hold back because resistance might result in abandonment. I'm not predicting that, but I'm saying that the Bible doesn't tell us any place that God is obligated to extend grace to us to believe over and over and over. Our experience is that he usually does. But we also know from the Bible and from human experience that people resist enough and God moves on and he allows them the choice that they make. So all of that to say that Mary recognized Jesus and we might say, well, she saw him and recognized and maybe, now, certainly that seems to be part of it, but we also need to recognize that Jesus reveals himself to people and he did that with the next group of people because we talked about the other disciples. There was the other disciples, singular, and the other disciples, plural, and how they were all together that evening, that same day of the week, and and all of a sudden, Jesus was among them, and they rejoiced. You know, Mary had told them what she had seen, but they had not seen until Jesus appeared in the room, and they saw him. Now, that's really, really interesting and significant, because Jesus revealed himself to them as present among them and with them. It wasn't like they had to believe somebody else's word for it. He was right there, and they could see for themselves, and they did, and they believed. It's also important that earlier in the story, the writer tells us that at that point in the story, the earlier point in the story, they they just couldn't quite understand. They didn't yet come to understand what rising from the dead meant. And, you know, we look back with our 2020 hindsight and say, how could they have missed that? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think that's at all appropriate for us to say that and to ask ourselves, how, how could they have missed that? I mean, the dreadful reality of crucifixion was absolutely a crushing blow to people. I mean, crucifixion was designed, not only was it physically a horror, but it was intended to completely crush and shame and demonstrate to people, both the victim and everyone else, that Rome had the power and they were going to exert it and you could not stand up to them. And so when when Jesus is subjected to crucifixion, it, it was a crushing blow to them and their confidence in him. And we need to respect the difficulties they had. Now, they, they all along had heard Jesus say, there were three places in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus told them what would happen, but they, they never really embraced that very well. Particularly in Mark chapter 8, you read that incident, that's a pivotal point in the Gospel of Mark. And, and they, they were not willing to go down that road. Keep in mind that just a week prior, Jesus had entered Jerusalem triumphantly. And they certainly would not have forgotten that. They had high expectations. Remember, this was Passover. This was the time they celebrated God's liberation from Egypt. And now here comes Jesus, and they're thinking, wow, God is coming, and he's going to help us. And so their sense that the kingdom of God would be coming very soon was completely crushed on what we call Good Friday with the death of Jesus. So let's not, let's not be too hard on them. But let's rejoice that 
here again, Jesus appears to them and reveals himself to them. And, and I think that's, that's just amazing, and, and how Jesus reveals himself to people. Uh, how do you identify with that kind of belief? Does, does this group of people seem to match how you've come to, to believe or what might convince you? You see, part of all of this is not just recognizing the characters that intrigue us and the characters that we might identify with most closely, but it's what would help us believe. And, you know, it's fair for us to think about that up front. I mean, they had help because they saw the empty tomb, but uh, clearly they didn't know what to make of that entirely. They couldn't quite come to grips with it, with it, even though they had heard Jesus say more than once that he would rise from the dead. But then when Jesus revealed himself to them, then they believed. You know, you might hear a lot about Jesus. You might hear the stories, the Bible stories. You might remember Christmas and all of that. And, and yet, you're just not quite ready until all at once something happens and God reveals himself to you in a way that is so compelling that you come to believe. So maybe you identify with those disciples that, that there was something that took place in your life or maybe is taking place now that is so compelling that you're coming to believe and recognize that Jesus is alive and he is the Savior of the world, and he is for you. So three three people or groups. And then we come to Thomas, and he was missing in that appearance of Jesus in that room on the first day of the week. And Thomas just didn't want to believe. Now, let's just get this out there, all right? People call him Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. I've heard that forever. I'm sure that was my first description I ever heard about Thomas, was, he, was that he was Doubting Thomas. And, and, okay, I get that. Fine, he did. He doubted. But, you know, when you look at that through a little bit more mature eyes, you recognize that Thomas didn't have the advantage that the others had. We have no sense that he actually visited the tomb and saw it empty. He may have. We just don't have that recorded here. He certainly was not present when Jesus appeared to them. We don't know. Did he hear the testimony of Mary? Maybe. Maybe not. But he definitely did not see Jesus in that room that first day of the week. So to call him Doubting Thomas is a little bit unfair because we, we kind of use that as, a, as a, well, get your act together, Thomas, and quit doubting. And, and so maybe we ought to think of him as Absent Thomas. He just missed it. And, and he wasn't there, so he missed it. Maybe we need to think of him as Rigorous Thomas. Thomas saying, look, I need to know without a doubt. I need convincing evidence that, that it was Jesus. And so he was rigorous in the way he comes to that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Maybe we, you want to think of him, and this is no, this is no um, uh, how should I say, criticism of people from Missouri, but I've been told that people from Missouri are the show-me people. They want to be convinced. Well, God bless you. I want to be convinced, too. So maybe he's, he's Thomas from Missouri, that he just needs convincing. Oh, that's, that's okay. Um, I don't know. Maybe he's angry, Thomas. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe he was really kind of ticked off that, that they all got to experience something he didn't. And there's no explanation, that, as far as I can tell, of why he was absent from that first visitation that Jesus made to them. He just wasn't there. And, and maybe he was just mad. We'll talk about this in 
Ask yourself, who do you find intriguing? Who do you identify with? Well, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'll tell you who my identity is with when we come back after this short break. I'll talk to you in a moment. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Whether you're an independent, a Democrat, or a Republican, one thing remains true. Airborne viruses love us equally. You've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the advanced nasal solution, Cofix RX. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. Spray goodbye to colds and flus with a Cofix RX nasal solution cleanse. That's cofixrx.com. Save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD at cofixrx.com. We are fighting the ultimate fight between good and evil. AmericaOutloud.com replaces groupthink with innovative think. Well, it was Walt Whitman, the poet, who said, Keep your face always toward the sunshine, and shadows will fall behind you. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. This is Pastor Rick, and you're listening to Faith Is, where we understand faith as absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we're trying to challenge each other and stretch each other, and we're reminding each other, especially this week and probably again next week and probably the week after that, that resurrection never ends. In fact, you might consider when you go to church this weekend, you're going, aren't you? Oh, good, good. Glad to know that. When you go to church this weekend, make sure you say to your friends, you know, resurrection never ends. At first, they'll probably look at you funny. They did me when I first started saying it. But then they'll get it, and you'll all remember resurrection never ends. Well, we've been looking at the five people or groups of people in John chapter 20, and I asked you to think about who you identify with, and I'm going to talk about the person or group that I find most intriguing in this story in just a minute. But as you may remember, 
a few weeks ago, we started counting down the hymns every Christian should know. And I, I decided to, to share with you the conclusion our church came to. And, and you know, you could do this with your whole church, or maybe you have a Bible study group. Just ask people and, and develop a process. And you can identify the hymns that every Christian should know. Your list may be different than ours. That's fine. I don't think that's a, a worry at all. The important thing is to use that as an opportunity to think through some of the important informative hymns that that people sing. And we took a generous definition of hymns. Some people might argue that maybe everything on our list isn't a hymn. Maybe it's a gospel song, for example. I know there are specific definitions to those kinds of things, but we didn't worry about that. We were more interested in what would be formative for people to know. And so we've been counting them down. We started with number 10. Number 10 on our list was Jesus Loves Me. Number nine, Christ the Lord is risen today. Well, that fits the season because resurrection never ends. Number eight, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. About the holiness of God. Number seven, what a friend we have in Jesus. Number six, a mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark, never failing. Uh, What an important, important reminder to us today. We can trust God. We don't need to be afraid of anything. Last week on Easter weekend, we we talked about it, how wonderful it was. I wish I had been better at this, but I'm really not. That I'd planned it this way, but it came out that we talked about number five on our list. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. People sometimes wonder, how how do we manage in a world that seems so upside down and crazy from time to time? And the answer is, because he lives. We can all face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because he lives, because he holds the future, life is worth the living just because he lives. Well, number four on our list is probably a familiar one to many of us. Probably you recognize it when I tell you the title, and the title is The Old Rugged Cross. The Old Rugged Cross was number four, is number four, I should say, on our list. It's a well-loved hymn, has been around for a long time, written in 1913. I'm going to just read the stanzas to you, and then after I've read the stanzas, so you can see kind of how the stanzas build on each other, then I'll read the refrain, and you may be more familiar with the refrain than anything else. Stanza one, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Oh, that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me. For the dear Lamb of God left his glory above to bear it to dark Calvary. Stanza three, in that old rugged cross stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For t'was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. Then the final stanza. To that old rugged cross I will ever be true, its shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me some day to my home far away, where his glory forever I'll share. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. 
Well, this hymn text and tune as well, with some help from another gentleman, were written by a man named George Bernard. He was born in Youngstown, Ohio. Shout out to Ohio. He was a Buckeye, just like me. I was born in Ohio. So let's rejoice over that, all of us who are Buckeyes. Well, he moved to Iowa when he was a child, so he has some connections there, but he's obviously a Midwesterner. He served with the Salvation Army for several years. He was ordained in the Methodist Episcopal Church. And the Old Rugged Cross isn't the only hymn that he wrote, but it is the one we remember. And we're very fortunate, and, and I was surprised to notice this because as I looked into this hymn a little bit, I didn't realize, but on my shelf I have a book that contains his description in his own words of writing this hymn, The Old Rugged Cross. The book is 40 Gospel Hymn Stories. I've had it for a long time. I got it from a family in Evansville, Indiana that attended the very first church I served. I'm not quite sure how I got it now. I don't remember it. They probably gave it to me because of my interest. It was published way back in 1943. And so... It's much closer to the writing of this hymn than than we are, and as far as I can tell, let me see, yes, it was um, published before Mr. Bernard, or, or Reverend Bernard, I should say, before he died, so it has a, a high likelihood of being accurate. So here's what he said about writing the old rugged cross, quote, and I'm going to read just quite a long quote, so hang with me. I was praying for a full understanding of the cross and its plan in Christianity. I read and studied and prayed. I saw Christ and the cross inseparably. The Christ of the cross became more than a symbol. The scene pictured a method, outlined a process, and revealed the consummation of spiritual experience. It was like seeing John 3.16 leave the printed page, take form, and act out the meaning of redemption. While watching this scene with my mind's eye, the theme of the song came to me, and with it the melody. But only the words of the theme, the old rugged cross, came. An inner voice seemed to say, wait. I was holding evangelistic meetings in Michigan, but could not continue with the poem. After a series of meetings in New York State the following week, I tried again to compose the poem, but could not. It was only after I had completed the New York meetings and returned to Michigan for further evangelistic work that the floodgates were loosed. Many experiences of the redeeming grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ during those meetings had broken down all barriers. I was unable to complete the poem with facility and dispatch. A friend aided in putting it into manuscript form, Charles H. Gabriel, to whom the manuscript was sent, returned it with a prophetic statement, You will hear from this song. Likewise, when I strummed my guitar and sang it to Reverend and Mrs. Bostick upon my return to Michigan, they felt as had Mr. Gabriel, for they said, God has given you a song that will never die. It has moved us as no other song ever has moved us. End of quote from Reverend George Bernard. So you can understand, I guess, from that description that the beginning of the song was quite moving and it has been moving people ever since. And it has transformed our thinking about the cross from an emblem of suffering and shame to something to cherish and to value 
and it helps us understand the symbolic meaning that we've attached to it so much. Well, how about if we go back to John chapter 20? Well, the cross resulted in the death of Jesus, and now we've been talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And during this story that's relayed to us in the pages of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, I ask you to think about the five people or groups that came to believe and which one intrigued you or which one maybe you find yourself identifying with in a way that is different from the others. And, and I said I would tell you mine, and anybody who knows me would probably not be surprised by this. Now, some people might say they're shocked because I'm a pastor, I'm a minister. Well, don't be so shocked. We're people, too, um, uh, amazingly so sometimes. But I find the most intriguing character in this story is the character of Thomas. And in so many ways, he's like me, like I have been or like I was. And it wasn't that, that I ever said, no, I won't believe unless. I don't remember, remember ever thinking that much less saying it out loud. There's a lot of things that I would have thought about my questions about Christian faith that I would have never said out loud to anyone. I don't know that I was afraid to. I just just didn't think it was appropriate. I don't ever remember anybody saying to me, you shouldn't ask certain kinds of questions. Uh, it's just kind of, I, I just didn't know what to make of what I thought. And I, I did express some concerns to people, one friend in particular, about why Christianity reveres the cross so much, and, and he helped me with that, and I understand that better. I, I said, remember saying to him in that conversation, I, I'm surprised that we don't focus on the empty tomb more, and he helped me understand some perspective on that, and I've had better perspective since that, but I really find myself a lot like Thomas in this regard. I grew up going to church, hearing the Bible stories, never doubted that they were true. I remember learning them, oh, almost by osmosis, I suppose. You've heard me mention Clara Goodman, the, the lady who taught me more about the Old Testament Bible stories and maybe the New Testament too. I particularly remember the Old Testament stories that she taught us than anybody else. And I had, had such gratitude for her teaching me that in spite of the fact that I was probably too much like a typical kid during that whole process. She never, she never communicated to me that I was difficult, even as I got older and was an adult. But I appreciated that so much. But, and I never, never doubted the stories. I never questioned, well, what about this and what about that? I, I always understood them to be true. Until uh, it was about my second year of college. I began to ask myself, and it was I can almost remember the, the moment, not quite exactly. I, I remember roughly where I was. I was in Owensboro, Kentucky, actually. That's where we lived at the time, my family lived. And I can remember suddenly it, it came to my mind like never before, the question, how did they know it was true? In other words, how did all of the people in the church where I grew up in Ohio, and the people that I knew in Kentucky at the church, how did they know all of this was true? What information did they have to verify the truthfulness of the Bible? And I remember not so much that anybody had challenged me on that as much as I just was thinking about things. And you know, when you're, when you're transitioning from being a kid to an adult, 
shall we say, when you move from high school into college and beyond, you begin to think about some of these kind of things, and I did. I began to ask myself that question, how did they know it was true? Because I knew they weren't old enough to have been there. And I did not know, I'd never heard anyone say how they knew it was true. It was just understood, it's true. And I believed that, I didn't doubt that. Well, so that kind of put me in the category of Thomas, and I began looking for evidence. I began to ask myself, well, can you find out? I began to discover, and really, I don't remember it being hard. I don't remember going through a difficult time discovering it. I guess I was fortunate. I guess looking back, we would say that God led me in the right direction, helped me see these things. But I found and discovered to my delight the discipline of apologetics. I'm not well-formed in apologetics, don't misunderstand. But I remember finding some information, particularly that had been developed by a man named Josh McDowell. Some of you may have heard of Josh McDowell. He wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and he wrote other things. And, but that Evidence That Demands a Verdict was the most formative book for me. And I began to read all of the absolutely concrete, substantial evidence for the truthfulness of the Bible and its stories, the truthfulness of the story of Jesus, the truthfulness of the resurrection. And that, I think that's probably where I first encountered the notion that all of Christian faith rises and falls on resurrection, nothing else. If Jesus rose from the dead, he is who he says he is, and he did bring salvation to the world, and we can trust him. We can have confidence in him. And if he didn't come back from the dead, if he didn't rise again, then everything we have thought we believed crumbles. I remember that being kind of a stunning statement, but I quickly realized it. And having processed all of the stuff in that book and used it over time, it really helped me realize that faith is not finding your feet firmly planted in midair and just believing something because somebody says it. No, faith is verifiable and it makes the most sense of the reality around us and of the story of history story of Jesus. So you might wonder, well, what kind of evidence was that? Well, various things, and I don't remember enough about what I processed, but I came across a few statements by a New Testament scholar, Scott McKnight, and apparently people from time to time ask him about the best evidence for the resurrection. So I thought I would share you his seven ideas, just so you'll have an idea, and maybe it'll help you, because it's possible some of us, besides me, identify with Thomas. I just need to know that I know that I know. I need to have evidence. I need to have some substantial reason to believe this. I can't just be believing it because I believe it. Now, other people aren't that way. I get that. And if you're not that way, then you probably can't understand someone like me. But on the other hand, I can't understand someone like you because I need it. So, But the important thing isn't how we get there. The important thing is that we get there. And we come to believe. We come to be convinced. We come to, to not just believe it's true, but to put, put it into practice in our lives, to make it the guiding force of our lives, to uh, build our whole life on that understanding. So anyway, here are the seven things that, that Scott McKnight listed as evidence, and they, they match up a lot with the other things that, that I've read other places. And the first one, he says, the objective reality that the tomb was empty. It clearly was empty. There was never a body produced. Number two, eyewitnesses. Many people in the earliest days after the 
the resurrection of Jesus, were there. They knew about the crucifixion or they were there at the crucifixion. They understood Jesus had died and they claimed to see Jesus after his resurrection. So eyewitnesses. Tomb was empty. Eyewitnesses, number two. Number three, there were multiple witnesses. All of the Gospels record stories about the resurrection and there were multiple people that saw what happened and gave testimony to what was going on. It wasn't just one or two. It was many people, and they all told the same story. Jesus had died, but he rose again. So Scott McKnight names the empty tomb, eyewitnesses, and then the multiple witnesses from the Gospels. And then he talks about that there was a Roman decree later given in response to the... the um, whole story about Jesus, that um, capital punishment would be enacted for anyone guilty of spoiling a tomb. And this seems to have been in response to the growing number of people that talked about how Jesus had been raised from the dead. You see, the, the early days they talked about his body being stolen. Well, the Roman decree was that you don't mess with a grave, or you could be, you could be executed for that. And so that seems likely to have been a response to the story of a resurrected Jesus. Also, and I alluded to this earlier, that none of the opponents, number five, none of the opponents of the earliest Christian understanding produced the body of Jesus. They could have easily debunked the whole thing, but they could not produce, in spite of the statements that it had been stolen, they could not produce the body of Jesus and prove that he had not been raised. If they had done this, that would have been it. Had there been one, and you can be sure, if they had had one, they would have produced it. Number six, experiential. And he cites the fact that millions of witnesses testify to their own experience of knowing Jesus as one who is alive and speaking to them. And you might be one of them. It's remarkable from time to time how, how we get these insights from, from the Lord. And, and we talk about the, the impact of the Holy Spirit and how it affects us and reveals things to us. And he does. And we need to accept that as validation that Jesus is alive. And then number seven, Scott McKnight says that Jesus predicted it. He said clearly that he would be raised, and, and he was. So those are the kinds of things that have helped me. And there are many other things that talk about the, the Bible and how we got it and all those kinds of things. And I find them all very helpful. And just as we kind of summarize all of this, I want to remind us that the story of the gospel was given to people who have believed without seeing. And that's us. We didn't get to see there. We weren't there the first time. But we still have the opportunity to come to believe. And we need to realize that Jesus comes to bring new life to people, just as he came and demonstrated to all of those people that there was new life because of resurrection. He comes and gives new life to all of us. And we shouldn't take that lightly or, or breeze by that too quickly, because that's the whole point. It's to strengthen believers, to strengthen our understanding, so that we who have come to believe will keep on believing and keep on realizing that because of resurrection, there is new creation, there is newness of life, and death is not the last word. Never is, never will be, cannot possibly be. 
And so we come to the issue of faith, of coming to believe, not simply believing it's true, but to actually give ourselves and our loyalty to Jesus. And a lot of times people want to know, well, what do I have to believe to be a follower of Jesus? And I don't know that I'm prepared to give a list like that. I'm not sure that that's helpful. I'm not sure faith is defined by a series of beliefs. You know, believe this is true, believe that's true, believe the other thing is true, and then you become a follower of Jesus. You know, following Jesus is much more about making a decision that your life will be conformed to his teachings and his example. It's not about believing something is true. See, that's why I often say faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. It's not the truth of God, it's that God is trustworthy, that he tells us the truth, and we can, we can live our lives depending upon that. But there's another idea that's related to all of this that maybe will help you. And if you're struggling and if you're growing and if you're stretching and if you want to come to believe more, some people just struggle and say, well, I'd like to believe, but I can't. Maybe this helps too. See, faith is not about believing certain things are true. You know, the truth of the resurrection is very important and it helped me a lot. The truth of how we got the Bible and why we can depend upon it helps me a lot. All of those things come to us from this discipline I mentioned earlier, apologetics. And there is still available this book that that Josh McDowell put out. It's been revised called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Maybe that would help you. But there's also a different idea related to that. This idea of faith is not so much propositional or a series of beliefs as it is getting to know another person. And when you read the pages of the Bible, maybe you prefer to listen to the story of the Bible in a recorded format, that's fine. But when you, when you encounter the story of the Bible, you're getting to know another person. You're getting to know the person of Jesus. And you know we have confidence in people, more or less, usually based upon how well we know them. I mean, there are people that you know that you don't have a lot of confidence in because maybe they aren't reliable. They say they'll be there for something, but they usually aren't. But on the other hand, there are people that you probably have come to rely on because you know they're trustworthy, and you're thankful for that, and you have confidence in them, and it's, it's a great thing to have people like that in our lives. Well, this is much the way it is with coming to faith, with coming to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. It's getting to know Him. So when you read about the story of Jesus, you're getting to know this person named Jesus, in the same way the disciples got to know him, in the same way Thomas got to know him. When you read the stories about Yahweh in the Old Testament, it's the same person. It's the same God. Jesus was just a personal revelation of God. So all of this taken together, when you go to a Bible study, when you go to church, all of these things are helping us get to know this person named Jesus. And the more we get to know him, the more we can have confidence in him, the more we can trust him, the more we can realize that he's worthy of our trust. So I don't know which person or group you identify with in most, but my prayer is that we would all develop confidence in Jesus, that we would all come to understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, in the trustworthiness of his son, Jesus. And as you think about that, as you process that, and as you get to know him, I am confident that if you are an honest seeker, you will seek and you will find 
that Jesus is trustworthy. I'm Pastor Rick.